This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Caddyshack. Currently streaming on VOD, but let's be honest, if you've seen this movie, you probably have it on DVD or Blu-ray somewhere. But before we launch into this week's movie, next week we will be covering a personal favorite of mine, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Starring Will Ferrell, Christina Applegate, Paul Rudd, and Steve Carell. You don't want to miss that one, so catch that one on VOD, or if you, like me, have the Blu-ray, catch that before next week's show. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to subscribe, comment, or ask a question about the show. Finally, we've moved the schedule around a bit in the first half of this year, but we are still planning our schedule to finish the spring and into the summer, including a tiebreaker show, a revisit, and another list episode, as well as much, much more. So, get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, by email, or on our website to let us know what you would like us to cover yet this year. With that, Dad, I distinctly remember watching this movie for the first time, and you showing it to me, but what was your introduction to Caddyshack? I watched Saturday Night Live from the first episode. And so I was a huge Chevy Chase fan. And then when Chevy Chase left, it was Bill Murray replacing him. And I was a huge Bill Murray fan. I also was a big Rodney Dangerfield fan. Most people had not ever heard of Rodney Dangerfield, but Dangerfield used to do a, a stand-up routine weekly on the Dean Martin variety show in the early 70s. So these were all my favorites, and I really wanted to go, and I went to the film, see the film the summer it was released and couldn't get in because on that one time, the movie theater in Beloit actually made me show whether I was 17 or not, and I wasn't until that following November. So I didn't see the film until it was released on HBO sometime in 1982. Oh, boy, that's a long time to wait, especially in the uh, sense of today's culture where everything's released like right away. Well, and what's more, a couple of my friends from high school, and they got in. They weren't carded, and they were actually six months younger than I was. So I had to only hear about it for a long time. Oof, that's rough. Yes. Do you remember showing this to me for the first time? I believe so. And covering your eyes during a certain scene. Oh, no, no, no. Not just, oh, I forgot where this was placed and like leaning over and trying to like shield me with your body. But then like grabbing the remote and trying to skip the scene. Where's the scene skip? Where's the scene skip? <laughs> to this day. Uh, I honestly didn't even remember the second half of that Danny Noonan scene in Judge Smales' house. I'm like, oh, this is a completely new part of the movie to me. I just skip over this. <laughs> so do you have your plot summary ready? I do. Danny Noonan, a caddy 
played by Michael O'Keefe, seeks a college scholarship at the country club in which he works. Working to get the scholarship, he deals with a Zen golfer, Ty Webb, played by Chevy Chase, and a club leader, Judge Smales, played by Ted Knight. Noonan is soon caught up in a grudge golf match involving the Judge, Ty, and Al Cervic, Rodney Dangerfield, an obnoxious nouveau riche golfer. All right. This film has a cult following and was described by ESPN as perhaps the funniest sports movie ever made. I actually credit ESPN with probably giving this wider notoriety than it ever had before that with how many lines that are now a part of pop culture because they were on SportsCenter for however long. This film is also second on Bravo's 100 Funniest Movies. The film is recognized by the American Film Institute in 2000 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs at number 71. In 2005, it was on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes for Carl Spackler, Cinderella story out of nowhere, a former greenskeeper now about to become the Masters champion. It looks like a miracle. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. At number 92. And in 2008, AFI's top 10 of 10 at the number seven sports film of all time. Did you know Carl Spackler was originally a silent character in the script in the manner of Harpo Marx? But after Bill Murray was cast, Harold Ramis encouraged Murray to speak and improvise. Did you know? Bill Murray improvised the Cinderella story sequence from two lines of stage direction. Harold Ramis simply asked Murray to imagine himself announcing his own fantasy sports moment. Murray simply asked for four rows of mums and did the scene. Did you know? The rowdy improvisational atmosphere during the shoot created by Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and Rodney Dangerfield didn't sit well with all the members of the cast. Ted Knight, widely regarded as a very nice man, got fed up with the constant shenanigans. Initially, Murray's, Chase's, and Dangerfield's roles were to be a cameo appearance, but their deft improvising caused their roles to be expanded, much to the chagrin of Scott Columby and some of the other cast members whose roles were reduced as a result. Did you know, according to Chris Nashawadi's book, Caddyshack, Rodney Dangerfield was so unaccustomed to how films were made, Harold Ramis had to gently guide him to make sure he was comfortable. The first scene Dangerfield was in, the pro shop scene, was ready to go and Ramis called action. Nothing happened. Dangerfield just stood there. Ramis asked him if there was a problem. Was he ready? Sure, Dangerfield said. Ramis called action again. Again, nothing. Ramis walked over to him and said, Rodney, when I call action, that's your cue to come in and do the scene. You mean do my bit? Yes, do your bit. Ramis called action for a third time. Silence. He then said, okay, Rodney, now do your bit. Dangerfield (laughs) pounced into the room and delivered a perfect take, even improvising the line about getting a free bowl of soup. From then on, whenever Dangerfield was in a scene, Ramis never said action. He just said, Okay, Rodney, do your bit. (laughs) Did you know? Bill Murray improvised the scene with Peter Burkrot in which Carl holds a pitchfork to Angie's throat. According to Beckrot, he was genuinely nervous during that scene because the pitchfork was real. Did you know? The scene involving a baby Ruth candy bar being thrown into the swimming pool was based on a real-life incident at Brian Doyle Murray's high school. (laughs) Did you know 
Harold Ramis wanted to use Pink Floyd to write the music for the film, but couldn't get them. After an audition, Kenny Loggins came up with the famous theme song for the film, I'm Alright, and played it for the producers and got the job. Johnny Mandel, who wrote the film's musical score, was also hired immediately afterward. Did you know, this was the final film of Ted Knight. With that, what is this movie about slash the elevator pitch? Dad, what do you think? The haves and the have-nots battling each other for supremacy. And an opportunity to show the comic talents of Dangerfield, Murray, and Chase. Uh, I think the entire conceit of this movie is challenging the traditional snobs at the symbol of their snobbery, country clubs. Yes. I, I, I mean, think there's, and we're going to get into a wider discussion when we kind of go through classicness, because I, I have something very distinct, because I was thinking about this this morning as I was kind of getting ready and just um, collecting my thoughts on the movie, because I think I finished it um, during the course of today, but... There's a definite stamp on this movie, and I know this isn't a period piece, but it is a moment in time in the fact that there's a reason why there are a lot of these raunchy comedies right at that point, and these kind of college-age, coming-of-age type movies. I I would even put a lot of the teen movies of the mid-decade, the Ferris Bueller's, the Breakfast Club types, kind of into this general fit where you're upsetting the traditional norms. And at that point, the people who controlled culture were all the stuffy old white people who they were trying to rebel against. They did it through humor and poking fun at all the traditionalism that was there. A lot of the comedians that came out of this that were influential in the 90s kind of got their stamp based on movies like this. I I somewhat agree I find it a dichotomy, though, you're pointing this out at the same time. This was the introduction of what became the Reagan era, where stuffy old white guys seemed to dominate the most powerful positions in the country. And this is okay, but there was a clear division. There's the people who controlled the levers of power in government and those who controlled the culture. And I think the culture, especially Hollywood culture, started to very much split away from what was the decided political establishment of the time. See, Reagan's in one column, and then you get the comedic liberal backlash of the 80s. Because we're dealing with forces that are well beyond this, and I, I'm jumping the gun now. I We've delved too far into this discussion before I can get to it. Part of the reason why I, you and I have complained vehemently that nothing's funny right now is because everybody that's in control of the culture takes everything so seriously because there are so many problems. You know, at this point, all of the problems just seem to be that everybody was taking things too seriously. So how do you take things not seriously? You poke fun at all of the serious people. Well, when you have bigger problems that are affecting people, it's hard to poke fun at things. I think when the humor comes back is when people start to feel safe and secure. And the people that are controlling culture right now are minorities uh, that we're extending a lot of opportunities to that we hadn't given before. People of basically that had been somewhat forgotten to this point. And they're not at the point where, you know, safety is still a concern, especially as we're going through this kind of Asian-American conversation recently in the last few weeks. 
you want to talk about uh, their financial security is not quite there. So I don't think they're, if you're going to a Maslow discussion, that they're at the opportunity where they've come to the self-actualization conversation, they can start to poke fun at the rest of the traditionalism and get to this level of comedy. I think it's going to come, but we're a ways away from that, given the amount of challenges that we currently have going on between the pandemic or climate change or uh, systemic inequality, racism, et cetera. We're dealing with a lot of things that are seemingly bigger than us. And I think it unfortunately has made uh, everything less funny. I see things from a comic or comedic point of view a little different because I have longitudinal history that goes back. I can go back to the days with the Bob Hope Christmas specials in the 60s, uh, Laugh-In, the satire uh, of, uh, you know, All in the Family and Norman Lear and, and those shows. Uh, I could go into the fact that when uh, cable really started going in the late 80s and uh, comedy was really starting to show up on Comedy Central with stand-ups being on there almost continuously. Um, I can go back to the days when David Letterman and Rodney Dangerfield and all of these guys that were starting in the 70s really got going. And... uh, So I've seen comedy, and it ebbs and flows. It depends on the circumstances and the situations and what's going on. And it's difficult for times for people to come in with fresh ideas and fresh materials because comedy can get stale very easily. Once in a while, you'll have somebody who will break through and be incredibly refreshing. Um, I comment over and over. That Steve Martin went, uh, spent 20 years becoming an overnight sensation. Uh, he hit the right thing at the right time, being a complete nonsense comedian in uh, at a time when he had a, the perfect vehicle to to uh, showcase it. That being Saturday Night Live. So from when he started in the 1970, I want to say it was the second season he was on for the first time. In four years, he's selling out the Houston Astrodome and then burned out and had to quit and did movies from there on. So it, it, it changes, and it's not a continuous, and it's not just a cultural thing because it changes. You can look back at George Carlin. George Carlin was a traditional comedian. Then George Carlin became a uh, anti-war, anti um uh, traditionalist, you know, he poked fun at, at more traditional aspects of American society and culture. Let's and be then fair, George end, Carlin poked fun at everything and was anti-everything. Correct. But he became more of a cynic comedian later in his career. And so, you know, it just, it, it evolves. And the comedians that have staying power are the comedians that end up having the ability to evolve with the culture and what's going on. People's tastes of what they find funny change. And it is not necessarily a reflection of what's going on in the world at that time as much as it is. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's... (laughs) I think you're talking yourself into my opinion. I was with you. To some extent, yes. Let me present this 
aspect, all right? So you're you're kind of coming toward me, and I agreed with you up until the end of that, and then you started to come around to my point of view. I think comedians are a byproduct of their environment and their culture. But I'll also mention something else and use this as a way of explaining my point from before, because I was trying to get at a larger discussion. I don't have any real argument with probably 90% of what you said on the front end. The difference to me, and I heard this in a recent interview with Michael Schur, uh, who, if you don't know who Michael Schur is, He's the creator of The Good Place. He's an executive producer on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He was a co-writer on The Office. He also, I believe, was one of the primary creators for Parks and Recreation. And he's one of the highest-paid showrunners in Hollywood at this point for TV and writers' rooms. But he was doing an le- uh, interview with Dan Lebetard because I guess he is now a consultant for the Lebetard Venture uh, Meadowlark Media now. And I think... The comment goes, and I'm paraphrasing from memory here because I I didn't – this kind of came to me as you were talking. But he mentioned something that comedy works best when it is in a safe environment. What about right now feels safe? Just anywhere. I mean, and I I say that when you're talking about who honestly feels safe from a pandemic standpoint – to a general inequality, to a financial, to just how you operate in your everyday life and all of your interactions. You're constantly questioning everything you do. And I don't think right now that's going to breed a lot of great comedic results. And that was more of the larger point I was saying. I think it's going to come again. And you're right in that sense, that it ebbs and flows. But I do think that it has an environmental effect on comedy writ large. Right now, we don't have that in 1980 or the late 70s going into the 80s where we were starting to rebound a little bit. Maybe not at the end of (laughs) – I I guess I stepped in it a little bit there because the Carter – the end of the Carter years, the beginning of the Reagan years was a little bit tumultuous I just from my historical context memory here. But once we got into kind of that mid-80s that it did have a – reassertion of affluence and thus especially by the time we got to the 90s and the boom of the dot coms and all the other the economy was getting going again that gave an effect that we had the ability to create better comedy right now i can't say the same environment is there but i disagree completely that it has to be within a safe environment for to be funny because if you think back when Carlin started, and then you have to look at Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul, they were making comments and, and jokes about the church, about the Vietnam War, about the Nixon administration. And there was a lot there that made a lot of people very uncomfortable. And this has been the case in a lot of circumstances. And I will go throw this out. I understand that because of Me Too, he's now a, a non entity but louis ck when he did his bit on saturday night live that we both were just like yes, oh my god how can you do 11 jokes yes yes but you no i did not say comedy has to be safe you mistake what i said comedy is bred best in a safe environment is different than comedy has to be safe and i guess i guess i understand but it has to do with 
when you're when you're safe of the ramifications you're willing to take more risks and that's exactly the the opposite and what you were ultimately supporting and what i really said was comedy has to be able to take risks but in order to take risks you have to feel like you're safe to take some of those risks okay and it's not necessarily and i guess the definition is is what is safe because right now there are jokes that can be made for example being of uh both scottish heritage and having an ancestor who was jewish you know in the old days you could make a joke about being scottish or jewish even now being in that group or in that thing you're hesitant to do it because you're afraid of offending somebody so when you're talking about a safe environment i think the safe environment is that People have gotten so serious, patient, uh, pricklish, uh, sensitive to things that it's gotten to the point where you you can't make a joke because you you're know how stepping on somebody. You know how you have described mom and grandpa's discussions of we're basically saying the, or they they say the same thing but they say it to each other and they can't understand that they're actually agreeing. That's what's going on right now. Well, and I guess then that's what I'm saying is is what you're saying about a safe environment is I guess I'm looking for some sort of clarification of what you're talking about. If if you're saying that it's a safe environment in general, yes, I can understand that. But if you're talking about people are just apprehensive to say or do things because of the potential ramifications and backlash. Okay. Um, in George Carlin's era – him going and doing the seven dirty words ended up with him spending a night in prison, but got a outswelling of fans and admiration and his popularity grew. Whereas today, if you do that and you catch it in the right light, you risk the opportunity of being completely canceled and um, removed from general culture. Well, and that's what I'm saying. I think the the consequences of, are are a little bit more severe at times than they used to be. Let's just say this: George Carlin could not do that bit right now. Exactly, and that's what I mean. There's one of those words in particular that um, that he yes. says that you can't say. You couldn't say because, of course, it would be extremely offensive to a large portion of the popular culture now and just on the sheer fact that uh i know exactly which one you're talking about but depending on which audience member they could mean a completely different one because i can think of three that are uh widely accepted as not available well i can i can name the one that i am which is a reference to a certain act that is done yes you're thinking of cs I'm thinking of just C. Okay. Uh, yeah, that that in and of itself would turn off 95% of females in this country. Yeah, the, only, the other 5% are comedians. And there's still apparently something where you can say F but not MF, where that somehow is like an extra qualifier on top of it. Yes, because of course there you're referring to incest. And that in and of itself is, you know, inappropriate and in the reference to and 
Yes. I mean, it's it's interesting that who's the one that's been shouting as large and as hard as anybody about uh, the um, uh, PC police, and that's Bill Maher. Because I think Bill Maher knows that his career as a, as a comedian is going to be extremely hindered if he can't make certain jokes because they're not politically or culturally acceptable anymore. Well, it's not just him. I mean, you what is it? Jerry Seinfeld says he will not play a college campus anymore. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I did not hear he's, that. No, that's been he said that multiple times, I want to say for the last decade. He he just will not. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I've never really thought Jerry Seinfeld was that funny, but that's a different situation entirely. <laughs> okay. So, let's get back into the movie. I think we had a long enough discussion on that. I'm sure that will come back up as we kind of go through the categories at the end, but or excuse me, the grading. But uh, best performance for you? Dangerfield. I mean, this was his first film that started a string of movies that he did until his health finally was gone. Dangerfield had been a, a, a working comic. Uh, his real name was uh, John Cohen. Went by the f- name Jackie Cohen for a l- many, many years. Gave it up when he had a family. And uh, he had small children, so he opened his own nightclub and lived above it so he could go down and perform And uh, while his kids were sleeping. This was later in life that he started doing this. I think he was in his early to mid-60s when he started doing the films. He just had, he was a natural for it because if you watched his stage shows, they weren't much different. And if you haven't experienced Rodney Dangerfield as a comedian, um, just happened to go on, I think it's on, uh, is it on, uh, net on Peacock or is it on Paramount? Who, where, who has the Carson show? Prime. Prime does. Okay. Because just, just find an episode where Dangerfield is on with Carson because Carson just played a straight man. He'd, he'd ask a question that Dangerfield would go off on his shtick and uh i just thought that this really started a a trend that lasted through much of the 80s that uh, made him kind of a star he wasn't wasn't a movie star it was uh vehicles by which he could uh present the comedy that he had done and learned over decades yes i know he was kind of a breakout for this movie so i certainly can't fault you for that one but to me, it was Harold Ramis. This is his first directing or directorial movie. So that's an added pressure. This is also famously a rather lavishly unruly cast and setup. So I just simply give him credit for, A, being able to know exactly what he needed in his movie to the fact of writing in that scene with Chevy Chase and uh, Bill Murray on the fly, being able to let comedians work in their environment and improvise and make that be a staple of the movie in a way that hadn't really been done up to that point, but also to just simply keep all the plates spinning. There was so much going on in this. 
it takes talent to be able to get that many egos and comedians to somehow meld together into something that was workable, let alone turn it into something like this. And so just on that standpoint alone, I have to give him my best performance because I don't think the movie's made without his ability to somehow keep that all together. Best secondary performance, it's Bill Murray for me. I I would have a hard time not going Bill Murray. Almost every part in where I actually laughed while watching this this time was Bill Murray. I don't know why, but Carl Spackler is by far the best character in this in this uh, movie. He did it in a, six days. And all of these scenes are just almost classic timelessness. They More of his lines than anybody else's are part of the pop culture vernacular. And I just, this is one of his most endearing characters. It helped make him more of a marketable star. And coming off of the back of SNL where that was not yet the launching pad that it eventually became for superstardom quite yet. It had for a couple of people, but not into like movie star quality. I think this was a great movie for him. And uh, I, I, I just feel he's the best secondary performer. Well, I would say as far as launching from Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase, um, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd would have something to say about that as being uh, not a launching. Were they movie stars by the time of 80 other than Chase? Yes, because Animal House predated that and Belushi was in Animal House. Aykroyd was not a movie star by that point. Yes, he was, because they had done uh, a couple of different films, and then they hit it really big in 81 when they did The Blues Brothers. And that was like their second or third film together, or third film together, because they did one called 1941 that was directed by John Landis about uh, the scare about uh, after Pearl Harbor. That was not directed by John Landis. 1941? Correct. Who directed it then? Steven Spielberg. You sure about that? I am positive. And the only reason I know is because I've been slowly ticking off all of Spielberg's movies. Because it's not that good and it's not that funny. I know. It was the movie he did in between doing uh, Raiders and Close Encounters. Boy. Okay. Anyway, so, yes. Anyway, so the point being, I understand exactly where you're going, but anyway, my best secondary performance, I'm going to give it to Ted Knight because Ted Knight was not a comedian. He had been a comedic actor. He had been a big star on the Mary Tyler Moore show. He had done a few things. Uh, He really had to... uh, present or create a character that was both annoying but not so annoying that you just despised his character there was some you know almost there was a comedic element to it just by the absurdity of the character itself but even his lines i mean how many times have you heard me um use the line like especially when we're playing golf well we're waiting and, you know, so I, I thought as long You've as we've never got, used that line while we're golfing ever. Uh, yeah, I have. Maybe it's men with your mother, but <laughs> well, that's more likely. 
anyway, um, uh, oh, Billy, Billy, oh, Billy, Billy, oh, Billy. Anyway, so I thought I would give him a shout out. Ted Knight was, I always enjoyed Ted Knight. He uh, did a, sh- a TV show after this, uh, Too Close for Comfort, that he did. And, uh, unfortunately, died way too young. Uh, I think he was in his late 50s, early 60s when he contracted cancer and passed. I would have liked to have seen him do a few more things before he passed, unfortunately. But I thought I should put him down. I have a controversial choice for most charismatic. The Gopher? Yep, The Gopher. Uh, when I watched the making of uh, the documentary, The Making of Caddyshack, Kenny Loggins purchased the right the the uh, likeness of the gopher from the from the producers and Kenny Loggins would sell the damn gophers at all of his concerts and his comment was is he almost made more money selling the damn gopher than he made from the concerts I don't know what it is but the the movement of that stupid furry creature and how it dances and you know you you root for the character I don't know why but it, it by far is the most charismatic. It owns every single sequence that it's in. How a gopher or a gopher is more endearing than Bill Murray is just oddly talented. But it for whatever reason, I don't know if it was just the look of the gopher, how they had it move, what exactly. But it just, I don't know. I love the gopher. My uh, charismatic award I gave to Bill Murray, and that's because. Um, whatever scene Bill Murray's in, he just completely controlled and dominated it. You gotta think like a gopher. Uh, won't they, like, lock me up and throw away the key if I kill all the golfers? That's gonna be coming up. Alright, best scene. Uh, former greenskeeper, master's champion. For the most part, that entire line, or excuse me, that entire scene is, like, one monologued line. So, I'm gonna do that one for best lines and we'll save that. But most people immediately know exactly what I'm talking about when I describe the scene and how just utterly good it is because it's just him with this. I, I, I don't know. Is that like a ground keeping tool or like a weed whacker or something? It's a weed whacker before they had, had the electric and the gas powered weed whacker. That's what you had was that it was like a, a mini, uh, oh, what's the uh, the uh, a reaper? It was like a mini reaper. A scythe. Yes. And uh, my parents had one, and that was one of my jobs. Was when uh, I was nine, ten years old, to take that dumb thing and go out and whack the weeds where my dad couldn't get with the the riding tractor. I see. Good op- occupation for kids. And help my uh my baseball swing that's fair so the hat scene she get a free bowl of soup with her hat well it, it's classic because what it does is it just sets up how incredibly obnoxious dangerfield is and how just annoyed by him ted knight is it's it's the classic scene of the new rich against the old rich and how they just hate each other because 
They're just, they don't have the class. They don't have the sophistication. And um, yet they can try and hobnob around with them because they're on equal economic uh, standing. And uh, I just thought that scene really played out well and set that whole dynamic up for the rest of the film. Absolutely. You highlighted it there that I, I thought one of the great parts of this in fighting back, and we, we set this up before in the kind of elevator pitch area, and it's tra- or challenging the traditional snobbery. They did it in many different fashions. Ty Webb is a version of challenging the traditional norm, the yuppie. Then you get Dangerfield, who's the new rich guy, but he's just loud. He's obnoxious. He likes to live large. He throws his cash around. He's gambling. He's doing all the things that are not acceptable to these uh, prim and proper people. And then you finally get Danny Newman or Noonan and the younger generation, the poor people that are somehow trying to either get on equal footing or figure out their way into that environment because that's what success is deemed but then ultimately chooses a path not to be like them but to find success in other ways and so it's it's all three of those pathways towards that goal in essentially saying i don't have to live by your standard and part of it is is that the old rich take themselves so seriously and chase or ty doesn't take himself at all seriously he takes nothing seriously and then you have the nouveau rich as Dangerfield, who really doesn't have any concern about being serious about anything he's just living within the sphere of what you know he can do and he's really happy that he's got the money and can really seem to have fun doing whatever he wants whenever he wants the next one i had down was best round of my life I just like the scene for the contrast in Carl Spackler having to caddy for this older guy who is living out this dream scenario and thinks that there's no way that God could take this away from him because it's the one thing he's lived for being the best round of his life. And he gets to that pinnacle and then he has to die. And there's so much symbolism in that scene. It seems like an odd seem to just stick in into the movie but i don't know for whatever reason it still works just in the irony that's all dripping in that the part i love about that is the very ending where he's on the ground and bill murray just kind of looks around and slinks away like he sets the uh flag stick down and he's just kind of like oh okay i'm gonna high step it out of here so what was your next one the country club dinner uh, just the sheer fact, you know, with Dangerfield and hey, somebody step on a duck and just the highlight of one table, they're the complete snobs and the next table, they're having a great time. And, you know, the contrast going back and forth that ultimately leads to the climactic scenes. Uh, the next one I had down because I thought it just worked with the. Uh, debaucherous nature that they were trying to exploit, but the baby Ruth scene. Caddy day and the pool and the caddies kind of come, the caddies kind of coming in and taking over and uh, just completely uh, flooding the zone. 
you know, and the Judge Smales's wife walks in and somebody's like topless in the pool and uh, they're just running amok and causing all kinds of shenanigans within the, the, the pool area because this is their one day to let loose and it doesn't conform with their sentimentalities of how the pool should be used they should just kind of come in and sit around and be quiet and uh, or uh, uh not have this and then finally ending with the kind of jaws building sequence to as you put it duty <laughs> be the ball i can't be the ball if you keep talking okay that's my next scene you do drugs, Danny? Yes, every day. Good. Uh, yes. So much of uh, what I understand Chevy Chase to be is summarized in that character, because I understand him to be somewhat like that, only a lot more dictatorial in real life. Uh, the final one I had down was manganese. A lot of people even don't know what that is. Cannonball it. Yes, I had the groundskeeper house, so yes. Honestly, that was probably the funniest scene in the movie. I don't know why that works so well, but to just see uh, Ty Webb or Chevy Chase's character, who's so clearly uncomfortable, and trying to figure out a way of settling his nerves and his anxiousness set against Carl, who is, I don't know, preparing for the uh, explosive conclusion to the movie and then putting in drugs and alcohol and this kind of odd conversation with a guy who um, is anxious, but is above some of the weirdness of Carl Spackler with the um, just abject absurdity that is Carl Spackler's character and in his shack and all of that thrown together. And somehow these two guys just came up with some gold. So, yes, I understand. I, I, and I don't have anything else, I guess, for uh, scenes. I think we covered everyone that I had. Okay. So what was your favorite scene then? Boy, it's really a difficult one. It's got to be between the Cinderella story. And so I've got that going for me. So uh, mine, I just mentioned, it's the manganese cannonball in uh, Carl's shed or shack, his dwelling, and just kind of the unusual nature of that and the nervous energy from one with the absurd nature of the other and uh, all of the random conversation that you would if, if these two characters ever met, it makes sense. This is exactly how it would take place. So, most indelible moment for me, though, it's in the hole. It, it, uh, it's the most endearing thing from this movie. Yeah, it is. Uh, I know that that's a huge one. I wanted to go outside of the norm a bit, so I went with the final scene at the hole. Everything from Billy Baru to the explosion of the uh, plastic explo- or explosives, knocking the ball into the hole. and So, one or the other, it's kind of where I am on that. All right. Well, this seems like as good time as any. We'll take a quick break. You can take one with us, and we'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. 
It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, uh, before we get into best lines, did we lose anyone this week? Well, we did. He's not a famous actor per se. He's a famous personality. Uh, We lost G. Gordon Liddy. G. Gordon Liddy is best known as the head of the plumber's unit within the White House that was supposed to fix leaks and organize dirty tricks for the Nixon White House. Uh, After Liddy, who had masterminded the uh, Watergate break-in, went to prison, he was released and remade himself and uh, actually did five films uh, in addition to several TV movies. So um, because he did the five films, I guess, none that I had ever heard of or none that I would necessarily recommend but uh, he did pass away recently at uh, age 90 of natural causes, quietly in the home of his daughter. So because I can't recommend any of his personal work on a film or TV front, uh, I would instead let everybody go see All the President's Men, which ranks highly on our current list and that we covered last year uh, towards Election Day. So I think that's uh, either 42 or 43 in our list of movies so far. That being said, let's jump into Best Lines then. What do you have down first? Uh, Spalding Smales. I want a hamburger. No, cheeseburger. I, I want a hot dog. I want a milkshake. I want potato salad. Judge Smales, you'll get nothing and like it. Now, that is a line that I heard referenced often by you as a kid. (laughs) Ty and Danny. You take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. Then what's your problem? I don't know. Just the deadpan nature of that that (laughs) quip. Danger filled. Hey, call me a baboon. I think he thinks I'm his wife. I've sentenced boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Didn't want to do it. I felt I owed it to them. <laughs> uh, you got a pool? Ty. Uh, we have a pond. A pond in the back. Uh, we have a pool and a pond. Pond would be good for you. Dr. Beeper and Ty, I thought you'd be the man to beat this year. I guess you'll just have to keep beating yourself. Judge Smells, well, how do you measure yourself against other golfers? By height. Al Zervik. Hey, Moose, Rocco, help my buddy here find his wallet. Hey, everybody, we're all going to get laid. Remember, Danny, two wrongs don't make a right, but three rights make a left. Oh, this is the worst looking hat I ever saw. What, when you buy a hat like this, I bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? Oh, it looks good on you, though. Danny. I plan to go to law school after I graduate, but it looks like my folks won't have enough money. 
to put me through college. Judge Smith, well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Sandy and Carl. Carl, I want you to kill all the golfers on the golf course. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Sandy, but uh, if I kill all the golfers, they'll lock me up and throw away the key. Not golfers, you great fool. Golfers, the little brown furry rodents. Oh, well, we could do that. We don't even need a reason. In the immortal words of John Paul Sartre, Ivar, golfer. I haven't even told my father I'm not going to get that scholarship. I'm going to end up working in a lumber yard the rest of my life. What's wrong with lumber? I own two lumber yards. I noticed you don't spend too much time there. I'm not quite sure where they are. Got any more? Well, I had, and I had, I wanted, I watched it, and I had forgotten the line, and I was going to write it down, and something distracted me, and I forgot to. But it's where uh, Chase goes, and you know who that was? Mitch Cumstein, my roommate. That one just at that moment in time just hit me just perfectly. You're, and, you're burying that one because I have I have that in remaining questions. <laughs> okay, well that's fine. You go ahead. But all right. So the rest watching. of these are all Carl Spackler. Oh, Mrs. Crane, you're a little monkey woman. Yeah, you're lean, mean, and I bet you're not too far in between, are you? How'd you like to wrap your spikes around my? Just the image of Carl uh, washing his ball. <laughs> <laughs> Going up and down with the ball washer. Uh, yes. Finally, the two most famous things out of this movie. So I uh, jump ship in uh, Hong Kong and make my way over to Tibet. And I get on as a looper over a cars over in the Himalayas. A looper, you know, a caddy, a, a looper, a jack. So I uh, I tell him I'm a pro jack, and uh, who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama himself. Twelfth summon Lama, flowing robes, the grace, bald go striking. So I'm on the first tee with him. I give him the driver. He hauls off and whacks one, big hitter, the Lama. Long into a 10,000-foot crevice, right at the base of this glacier. Do you know what the Lama says? Gunga, Galunga. Gunga, Gunga, Galunga. So we finish the 18th. And he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know? And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me. Which is nice. <laughs> uh, yes. And the one you've been waiting for. What an incredible story. This unknown comes out of nowhere to lead the pack at Augusta. He's at his final hole. He's about 455 yards away. He's going to hit about a two iron, I think. Swings, pulverizes a flower. Oh, he got all of that. The crowd is standing at its feet here at Augusta. The normally reserved crowd is going wild for this young Cinderella who's come out of nowhere. He's got about 350 yards left. He's going to hit about a five iron, it looks like, don't you think? He's got a beautiful backswing. Swings, pulverizes another flower. That's, oh, he got all of that one. 
He's got to be pleased with that. The crowd is just on its feet here. He's a Cinderella boy. Tears in his eyes, I guess, as he lines up this last shot. He's got about 195 yards left. He's got a... Looks like he's got about an eight iron. This crowd has gone deadly silent. Cinderella story, out of nowhere, former greenskeeper, now about to become the Masters champion. Swings pulverizes yet another flower. It looks like a mirror. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. All right, are you ready for the Stanley rubric? Yes. Legacy, what do you have down? I have a nine and a half. I was between a nine and a nine and a half, and I just said nine and a half. This film just has legs. I mean, this film is 41 years old. And uh, a lot of people, and not just me, can still name a lot of the lines from this film. It's just had a it's had a life of its own. It's almost gained more popularity the longer it goes out. I think it's getting to the point where it's going to start waning. It is popular with your generation. I don't think people under 30 are going to come to this movie in the same way because, like, for at least me, I have a little bit of a cultural touchstone given that I was somewhat raised with this film and I'm a sports fan and I've enjoyed golf. And so all of the lines that have connection points for me are all there. But for the people, because golf's ratings have just continued to decline and it's not nearly the sport at times that it has been, especially when you talk about where I was with uh, the Tiger era and golf doesn't have a, a true hero right now in the way that it did with like Nicholas or Palmer or uh, Tiger at his height. You know, we have a lot of very good golfers. I think we might have some of the best collection of talent right now that has ever been there, but it's just not the same. Plus, as I mentioned before, I think ESPN created a outsized cultural narrative for this movie for how many lines that were borrowed for SportsCenter. And it wasn't just in the context of golf. It's in the whole has been referenced to basketball, to you know, a number of different sports. And it's just all of these lines, because this hit home a certain point to sports center anchors of the nineties that were like some of the biggest celebrities at the time, it took on another life of its own. I think if we get revisit this one in maybe another 10 years, the legacy will have decreased somewhat, not nearly as much, but right now with, uh, the legacy and the kind of outsized nature of all the lines and the moments. I think some of the things that are about this movie or um, these reference points actually outlive the movie. I think there are a bunch of people that probably know things about the movie without ever having seen it. But I wonder how long the staying power is on that. So, I mean, just look at a, a small throwaway line like I demand satisfaction or somebody stepped on a duck. How many times have those been repeated, but those are just small throwaways in context of the larger movie because there were so many of them. Certain comedies just bring a certain amount of lines that are part of the cultural norm, and this was one of those that kind of stuck around because it was a cult classic. 
I think the cult is very strong right now, but as your generation ages and unfortunately will slowly die out, how much staying power will this have past that? That's going to be the question. I can see this. As you were speaking, I started thinking about one other area or one other aspect, and that's the Marx Brothers films that had staying power for quite a while, but had kind of become a, uh, a niche um, following. Um, people who are willing to watch the films and, and such can sometimes enjoy them, but it unfortunately there are a lot of people who just won't take the time. And so... To be fair, I didn't think I would enjoy them and i watched a couple last year and i actually thought they held up pretty well so that's saying something for me who's somewhat of a comedy snob i know i didn't say my score before so i also had a 9.5 so the average is going to be pretty easy what is it impact significance i went with a five this was only the 17th biggest box office movie of the year it did well but it wasn't like great uh, most of the critics at the time kind of deadpanned it, and frankly, there were a lot of them that had to revisit the movie like at a 10-year anniversary column and basically say, oh, I think I was wrong, and basically rewrite their own columns uh, from what they originally said at the time. But this really was kind of a launching point for Ramus, Murray, Dangerfield. Uh, obviously, Chase was a little bit bigger at that point already, so he didn't need it, but and Murray had a certain level of stardom, but this put him on another level where he was a film star. Dangerfield did, as you mentioned before, several other movies, and this kind of launched his movie career where he became more of a pop culture icon. So, And then Ramis, obviously doing a bunch of directing work after this, this being his directorial debut. I think all of those have some level of it, but... I, I just don't see this as one of those that was big in the immediate moment. I think it got bigger as time went on, as we mentioned with Legacy. So they're kind of inverse properties in that category for me. I had a seven uh, because it pretty much launched Bill Murray as a as a bankable comedy star and propelled him into uh, – because after this they did Stripes – with Harold Ramis and that led to Ghostbusters and you know so I think to that extent it launched his career. Dangerfield became a pop culture icon from this film because after this he got cast into doing the Miller Lite commercials and became the butt of all the jokes. So having lived through this time period as an adult because I would have been 16. I turned 17. And the heyday through this was, you know, my very young adulthood, but still having been there. I think you don't realize how much of an impact this had. It didn't do well on the box office, but on or it had a life of its own because HBO was still in its uh, um, early stages. And, you know, there weren't a lot of films that had huge followings on there but Caddyshack was huge on HBO everybody marked on the schedule because you used to get a little book that told you when things were going to be on on HBO and you'd go through it for the month and mark what films you wanted to watch and when you were going to be available to watch them and I remember getting together with some of my friends 
with a case of beer and watching Caddyshack half in the bag and just laughing hysterically in the early 80s. So I think it has a little more impact and significance than what you think. And that's quite possible. You have the benefit of the experience where I do not. Novelty, I went eight and a half. Uh, I've kind of already made some of these points, so I won't beat it to death, but it's young people thumbing their noses at the establishment, which isn't by itself novel. But incorporating Dangerfield and Chase into the amount of people or the types of people that are thumbing their nose at the establishment, I think has a little bit added layering that makes it a little bit more novel. And I think the biggest part of the novelty of this movie is putting together three comedic giants at somewhat of their peak. And then you could even throw in Ted Knight, who I wouldn't say this is peak Ted Knight. That's probably what Mary Tyler Moore show. But yes, you know, he's not too far removed from that. And going through and I know Ted Knight was not part of probably the improvisational nature of this movie, but those three mainstays and then being willing to take chances on them improvising a ton of lines and just going off the cuff. I think by that standpoint alone, this is somewhat novel because this isn't a movie trope that had been done up to this point. I think there's a certain legendary status within the Hollywood community for how much this movie was improvised. And by that standard alone, I'll give it an 8.5. I'm going to go with a 9.5. And I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Sketch comedy as a stand-up or as a performance was not well known until Mike Nichols and Elaine May really started doing uh, sketch comedy as a routine in the early 60s. And as a result of sketch comedy, you started seeing the influence of things such as Second City TV and uh, Monty Python. And most everything was well-scripted. Even uh, comedies that were more original and fresh, such as Airplane, uh, were highly scripted. This is the film that I think took the Saturday Night Live genre, the whole script, or you know, the the basic sketch comedy. Um, I mean, one of the things people talked about with Second City and with Nichols and May and all. You could go to the show every night, and it's different every night. You'd see it. And I think this is the first film where they basically said, just go and do whatever you want. We'll just film it and take what we think is the best. And it became a, a an area uh, for making of comedy films that became the standard basically for the next 40 years. Next week's film, Anchorman, if I remember correct, they have outtakes, you know, where they had multiple lines for certain scenes that they would just shot and then picked the ones that they thought were the funniest. It's and in the they credits. Put those, yes. And that's where this started, was doing this type of thing. Because I don't think, I could not think of another film where they basically just said, ad lib your lines, and then we'll just pick whatever we think is funny. All right, so that averages out to a nine between us. Classicness, I think I'm going to have a little bit more to say than you are on this one. Uh, I actually have quite a bit 
here, so I'll let you go first. Okay, uh, classicness. There's a certain level of crudeness and sexism and such in here that I see, uh, but I don't think I think it holds up fairly well. I I mean, with slight modifications, I think you could do this film somewhat the same as it is now. So I went with a seven. And the only reason I gave it the lower marks than I did was is because I don't think the the whole atmosphere of golf and of you know the the societal aspect is quite as pronounced now as it was. So I, I marked it down a few points there. So I've maintained for a while that remakes of comedies are better to do than any of the drama remakes, especially of classic movies. I know that's somewhat sacrosanct at times, but I think that you're correct that the premise of this movie, kind of this poking fun at the snobbish society areas, still has some value that you can poke at and do it successfully. So this, the premise could be taken, reapplied, remade, and then just update some of the jokes. It's going to be hard to catch that lightning in a bottle of having three giant stars like this. And so that, to me, overall, is why it probably is not one that you can uh, recreate or remake successfully. But it, it is something where I think the premise could be borrowed and reused in a certain way and make it okay. So that aged fine for me. There are certain jokes that I think might have been funny at one point, but have kind of aged out. I don't think this is as uproariously funny for me as it might have been, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But it's still got a lot of good moments. I still laugh at most of the Carl stuff, but there are certain things. Where I where I start to have a few problems are just the, the small subtleties, and then we're going to get to some larger pieces. So... Part of the premise of this movie is uh, Danny's only means of getting into high society is going to college. Going to college being the achievement. That's not something that ages well in modern sense because I think it's almost an expected aspect of things. So that's a minor piece, but I thought it should at least be mentioned. Two, the only minority or let's say dark colored guys in this movie are used as props to grind smales shoes to bet on the final golf game or to get their boat run over by Ronnie danger or Rodney Dangerfield's mega yacht to me that probably wouldn't sit well and you'd probably have a better diverse cast if this were to be redone so eh, not not the greatest I will say Kenny Loggins still holds up. The music is still pretty good and catchy. The biggest issues are, you kind of mentioned it, the the culture snobs aren't the ones who are controlling the cultural sensitivities as much anymore. So I wonder how much, if you remade this today, if it would still apply and hold the same weight as it would have that, at that point to get the same level of humor. And so that's part of where I'm at. Finally, and this is the part that I knocked it down an extra half point on my score. I absolutely hate every time I watch golf, somebody tees off on a par five, it's in the hole. 
and yelling lines from this movie. Shut the fuck up, you dumb motherfucker. But here's the part that, to me, is the most troubling, and it's something that's a backstory to this. So I just have to kind of throw this in. This was something I was listening to somebody else talk about this movie a few months back. But it's the Cindy Morgan aspect of this movie. So during filming, one of the key producers of the movie, uh, I think his name is John Peters, pressured her into doing the topless scene. That, by modern standards, is already a bad mark. She resisted. Ramus said he didn't want to force the issue, but John Peters said, put her on the phone. Let me talk to her for a second. When she got off, she said, I'll do it. She was asked, what did he say? And she said, he told me if I didn't do it, I'd never work again. She got the Weinstein treatment. Peters confirmed his role in the story. She was definitely pressured to do the nude scene by me. The producer side of me was like, how can we not have a nude scene? But it didn't stop there. Peters decided he could get more publicity for the movie if Morgan posed nude for Playboy. All of a sudden, they tell me they are sending a Playboy photographer down to do a shoot for the scene. I was absolutely furious, so I called my agent. He said, honey, you're not a doe-eyed girl from the Midwest handle it. I had to stop the filming. They actually sent the photographer, but no shoot was done because Ramus canceled it. Peters was furious. He took petty revenge. Morgan had been promised a special credit, including uh, saying the words, introducing Cindy Morgan on the Caddyshack credits to open the movie. That was taken out. And then Peters lost her invitation to the movie's premiere. Kenny rectified that situation by sending Morgan a couple of first-class tickets to New York for the screening. I saw John Peters at the popcorn stand and walked up and said, John, what are you doing here? And popcorn went flying everywhere. That alone was worth the trip. As satisfying as it must have been to thwart Peters' petty plot, the producer ultimately got his way. Morgan said she didn't work for a long time after her experiences on Caddyshack. I had more lunches with agents at William Morris than I had auditioned. So I'll just add that as a caveat. With the half point down, I ultimately went with a three. <laughs> okay. So finally, Rock we'll go to rewatchability. All right. Rewatchability. Um, I went with a nine on this. Um, it's about as easy to rewatch as anything. Uh, the only reason I wouldn't give it a perfect 10 is because I don't know. I just. It, it comes up, and I love the film, and I love watching the film, but when you know all the jokes, it's just not as fun. So I, I have to actually let it sit for a while periodically so I can go back because there are just certain scenes that need to be, you know, I have to have the the visualization leave my head before I can watch it again and find it funny. I find it a little bit interesting that you say that some of my favorite comedies, it really doesn't matter uh, how much that I've, I've seen them, the lines, the moments, certain things. It's like a remembrance of the time you first laughed. And so it's got its own special place because of that. I don't really ever have trouble revisiting those because I know the plot. In fact, I think sometimes I find them funnier the more often I rewatch it because I'm finding all these little nuances or th- small things that weren't originally apparent to me. But you've grown up in an environment where you've had a lot more 
available material than I did. I mean, I remember as a kid when you'd come Really? I was watching Laugh-In when I was young? Okay. We won't discuss that. I'm talking about this aspect, which is, is when I was a kid, you'd come home from school and your parents weren't home yet from work or my my dad would get home uh three thirty I'd be or four o'clock I'd be home at three thirty I think from school. But we and my dad always took a nap. He just fell asleep on the couch until dinner time. And uh so we always kind of scoped out what we were gonna watch for syndicated TV on the local TV stations at 330, 4, 4.30, 5, and 5.30. And, uh, you know, so you'd look around and you'd figure it out. So there were only a, probably 20 different shows, The Brady Bunch, Hogan's Heroes, Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, that you'd watch. And But there was enough shows that they were spread out. So you would remember the episode after you'd seen it four or five times. And... Uh, you you would find it funny, but if you saw the same episode recently, it was difficult to sit through it. And I and I make that comment because I happen to find that uh, the Sundance Channel has been broadcasting Hogan's Heroes, which was one of my favorites when I was uh, six seven years old. And so I've recorded them. I've set the DVR to record them all, and I've been watching it. If it's an episode that I've seen within the last four or five months, I don't want to watch it. It's just not funny. It's got to have some level of freshness that I can remember it, but I don't remember all the lines. And then I find it funny. Same way with MASH. There's enough episodes of MASH. That by the time you get through 11 seasons, the episodes you saw early in the run aren't quite as fresh and they're funny again. So I went with a seven for rewatchability. This doesn't hold as much of a connection for me as far as humor. It doesn't hold the same specialness. I can appreciate it. I think it's an easy watch. It's not one I'm necessarily firing up if I say, oh, yeah, Caddyshack is on in the same way that I would have some of the ones I grew up with. So I, I think just by generational difference, it's going to hold a different place. But that that's just more of taste than anything else. There's nothing I'm going to say that's hampering necessarily the film. It's, it's just a subjective uh, rating on that one for me. So taking you back through the averages, we had both a 9.5 for an average of 9.5 on Legacy. We had a 6 for Impact Significance. Nine for novelty, five for classicness, eight for rewatchability. And then for our audience scores, we had an 88% on Google and 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, giving us an 87.5 and 8.75 points for our purposes, leading up to a final score of 46.25. And Tom, where does that place us on the list? Right between Iron Man and Rio Bravo. Okay. All right. So remaining questions. What do you got? Well, the first one is, is I happened to watch the documentary that was released a couple of years ago called Making of Caddyshack. 
And the what they had discussed was is just the amount of drugs and alcohol that was going on during the filming was overwhelming. They told the story about Dangerfield being asked if he would do the film because everybody kept talking about this obnoxious character like Rodney Dangerfield. And somebody came up with the idea of let's ask Rodney if he'll do it. So the producers bring him in. They give him the pitch. He's sitting at the desk. He pulls out a packet, puts or end up a razor blade and does a line of co or two lines of cocaine on the desk snorts it then goes claps his hands and wipes his nose and goes oh fuck yeah and how the hell did all of these people perform with that level of alcohol and drugs and have any ability to make any sense uh, at the time, cocaine was thought to be a performance enhancer. Okay. I will I'm point just, as an I'm aside, Sarah Holcomb, who played Maggie, um, she <laughs> she had done Animal House, and she was 18 at the time, and she was by far the youngest cast member, and she just... They had so much, so much, or so many drugs and so much alcohol going on. And then she does this film, and it's the same thing. After this, she became completely addicted to, to alcohol and cocaine and ended, and she was a schizophrenic on top of it. She ended up by 1981 or 82 being institutionalized for almost a decade. And is now living in an, under an assumed name in Connecticut and has nothing to do with the film other than the fact that the residuals still are providing her with her income. I suppose that's something, but boy, it's a tough way to get uh, the residual check. Yeah. My question also had something to do with her as well, but why is Maggie Irish? <laughs> They make no explanation or attempt to explain it during the course of the film. Now, in my research, according to the original script and specials on the making of the movie, the character Maggie is an exchange student from Ireland. This explains her thick accent, which goes unexplained in the final version. Okay. But it, it's just so odd that every time you'd watch it, it's like, why is this random Irish person in this movie? Well... I'm sitting there and I'm watching the beginning again, and it's like 500 children emerge from bedrooms with Noonan. And what the hell's going on here? Why there are so many brothers and sisters? And and then it dawns on me. Ah, this is written in part by Brian Doyle Murray, and by and this is his experience. And the character's name is Noonan. Oh, an Irish Catholic family. Oh, yes, I got it. I understand exactly. So, and it took a bit. All right, my next one. Who is Ty Webb? What does he do? And is he really Mitch Cumstein? <laughs> uh, that is the greatest name in a film, Mitch Cumstein. 
because you know how close that is to something else. I think we, I got a hint of all three of these at some point during the course of the film. So first off, when Judge Smales is trying to get Ty to not enter the golf game, he's basically talking about how his father was already rich. So my guess is Ty Webb is a second-generation rich person who lives off the fact that his family had a bunch of money and he just can kind of do whatever he wants without having to really do any effort. And he just kind of lives this lavish lifestyle that he really doesn't deserve, but just kind of puts around every day and does whatever the hell he wants, but has no pressure and no regard toward um, actually any responsibility in his life, which is why he melts down at the first sign of any actual anxiety or pressure. And then the other part of it, he's got to be Mitch Cumstein. That's an invented character because they lead you to believe exactly that he is the guy that's night putting up until the point where he gives you another assumed name. Like you, I, even now I didn't even remember that Mitch Cumstein was the name of the guy. It was like his roommate. And you, you assume that's like, well, I have a friend who's going through this situation in that, that sense. But the other thing that leads me to believe he's Mitch Cumstein, he goes night putting and ends up hitting a golf ball into Carl's shack. I had forgotten about that, too, until I heard that, and I'm like, yes. So I think from now on, whenever there's something that has to be done or said that I don't want to necessarily tie my name to, Mitch Cumstein is going to be the person involved. Oh, I, I look forward to the just, like, uh, high eyebrows that will be raised at you. All right, do you have any other questions? Yes, I do. Okay, so at the last scene, Brian Doyle Murray, as Lou, goes and says, we're all tied up. Okay, you had the same question. Yes, we're all tied up, okay? And then Smales makes his putt, or the, the, the Dr. Beeper misses his putt. Correct. Smales hits his putt. Correct. Ty misses his putt, and Danny makes his putt with the help of the explosion, and he wins. If you're all tied up, you have the same number of shots. All right, hold on. So this is the added benefit of this, because I originally had that question too. Where he loses on that shot is the bet goes from 40000 to 80000 because Dangerfield ups the stakes whether Noonan sinks that putt. Now, Except- the question then remains is not whether they win the bet which you'd be correct on because I'm like immediately, how does he win or lose unless he misses the putt? But it becomes why the fuck would judge Smales take that bet? He's basically surrendering uh, an advantaged position for a lower odds position. Except that for whatever reason, after the putt falls in, they're uh, kind of, Pull, doing a pullback, uh, a broad shot, you hear Brian Durland Murray goes, it's a birdie. And I'm going, what the hell is he talking about a birdie? The only thing I could think of is, is they threw this in so that the whole scene made some sense somehow. That up until that time, you know, they may have been tied, but Danny was the only one who put it on the green and had a chance for a birdie as opposed to a par. And so that's how they won the bet. Well, 
the fact that anyone actually says this is a sports movie is very loosely defined. There is the one scene, and it's so poorly structured that it's not really a great sports movie. Every other sports movie has like a climactic game or something that an element of an actual sports match that builds some tension or whatever. And this kind of does at the end, but it just does it in such a ham handed way. And really nothing about the film that's endearing has anything to do with golf itself other than the snobbish nature of people who play golf at country clubs. Well, the interesting thing I saw was I, I read part of an interview that um, an interview that Harold Remus had done is, is that he wanted to have a professional golfer come in and help all these guys perfect their shots because there were only two guys in the entire film who played golf, uh, Michael O'Keefe and Bill Murray. No one else of the other guys played golf, and so their shots looked horrible. And so, uh, but the producers wouldn't spend the money. So, so he says every time I watch the film, all I do is see these really shitty golf swings and just cringe. Well, the cuts that they have to make, you, you immediately see them hit a shot, and it cuts to the ball like going where it's supposed to go. Yes. All right. Any other questions you have? Oh, I have lots of questions, but not pertaining to the movie. Fair enough. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, currently streaming on VOD. So you won't want to miss that one. Please like subscribe, review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at tj3duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM.